Today we're going to be looking at the followers of Christ and we'll be looking at their connection. Last week we saw how they connected through baptism. Today we're going to see how they connect through the Lord's Supper. I want to welcome those who are watching online. Uh, we have a growing community of online watchers who watch our second service. And let me remind you, church, that if you're ever having to be away from Aloma Church on Sunday morning, you can log on alomachurch.org and click on the live stream and watch uh, God move through uh, the computer and through technology. And you can join your church home and your church family online live every single Sunday. And I thank the men and women back uh, behind us in the audio and the video booth who make that possible to where we can celebrate everything that's going on. Two weeks ago, we celebrated Memorial Day. Uh, memorials are an important part of our culture. They're an important part of our life. If you've ever been to Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, you've seen many memorials there, the Lincoln Memorial, the, the Washington Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial. There are historical memorials all around us. There are also cultural memorials. For example, when you see this logo right here, you immediately think a Happy Meal's coming, right? Now, let me see if you know these top three logos that are uh, within our culture today. The first number one logo that's seen is this. What is it? That's the Nike swoosh. What's the next one, guys? That's the Mac, Apple, right? And then the third one, Coca-Cola. Now, that brings all kinds of uh, desires, and you get thirsty, you want a Coke, you want a Mac. Now, let me see what your reaction is to this next logo. Uh, <laughs> there are historical symbols. I'm not going to even talk about it. We're going to move on. Historical symbols. There are cultural symbols. But there's also biblical symbols. When you open the Bible and you go to the Old Testament, you see that in the book of Genesis that God gave us a symbol. Remember following the flood, he flooded the earth and everything was destroyed. And then he put a symbol in the sky. What was it? A rainbow, and he said, When you see this rainbow, you're going to remember that I am never going to destroy the earth again in a flood. Church, know this the rainbow is not some symbol of someone's coalition, it's a symbol of the promise and the hope of God. So when we see this symbol, we know it's of God. When you come to the New Testament and you come to the Christian faith, you, you find, uh, we, we find in, uh, as we study history, when we study the early Christians, we, we see that the first symbol that was birthed out of the church was the ichthus, the, the fish symbol. Uh, it literally stands in acrostic, ichthus, uh, stands for Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Savior. Uh, that analogy, that acrostic, the ichthus, the Jesus fish, and and over time, the church has adopted other uh, uh, symbols, other memorials. Not only uh, do we have the ichthus, the fish, but you have the anchor, you, uh, the, the, the anchor, the fisherman. You have the bird that's flying down, the dove flying down, symbolizing the Holy Spirit. But you also have the, uh, the symbol that has become known as Christ, the Christian symbol worldwide for ages and ages. And that's what, church? The cross, the cross of Christ. The ultimate symbol of Christianity. In Scripture, God gives us two particular symbols to identify the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. 
Not only do we have historical symbols, not only do we have cultural symbols, we have scriptural, biblical symbols, but uh, now God is saying, I have given you two symbols, two memorials, two things that I have given to you so that you may celebrate and remember the most important event that has ever happened on the face of this earth, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of my son, Jesus Christ, your Savior. And it's the first is baptism. We celebrated baptism last week, and we had a great time celebrating baptism, didn't we? It was so great and so joyous to not only have the whole church together for the baptism service, but to be able to see so many lives that were changed by the gospel and the power of God. Seeing all of these people, young and old, uh, celebrating in the, the believer's baptism. Baptism is a picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ identifying in those three things. The Lord's Supper, that's etched in the heart of every believer, just as baptism, just as baptism is is a symbol, a, a memorial, if you will, in the Christian life, the Lord's Supper is as well. Jesus gave us two things as a church. He said, you do these two things, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Neither one, of you, neither one of them save you, but both of them point to the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. Where baptism, don't miss this, where baptism demonstrates the doctrine of identification. In other words, I died with Christ, as we saw last week. Baptism is identification. I died with Christ. The Lord's Supper demonstrates the doctrine of substitution. Christ died for me. You see, I am identified with Christ in baptism. But through the Lord's Supper, I realized that Christ died for me. It's a difference, but it's looking at the coin. You're looking at the head and tail, but you're looking at the same coin that Christ died, was buried, and he rose again. So the supper, the communion, the uh, whatever you may want to call it, when, when we gather together, it's the message of God's love for us. And as we come to this table today, we don't come haphazardly. You see, there was a group of believers in the Bible there in the church of Corinth, and they came to the table, and they came in the wrong way. And Peter confronted them through his letter of 1 Corinthians, and, and he talks to them, and he says, wait a minute, when you come to the Lord's table, you're coming at it all wrong. When you come to the Lord's table, there are certain things that have to be present in your life and present within the body of the church in order for you to partake of this communion before you can take of this Lord's Supper. And he said, what you're doing is you're making this a mockery. So I want us to be very careful that as we come to the Lord's table that we have a teaching on this. You see, when we come to Acts chapter 2, we see that the followers of Christ in Acts chapter 2 verse 42... In Acts chapter 2, in our follower series, we've been saying we want to identify certain things in the life of the followers of Jesus, and and the Lord's Supper is one of them. Remember in Acts chapter 2, this is the great sermon where Peter preached and 3,000 people were saved, right? 3,000 people were saved and then baptized, and then it says they became a part of the church. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, and then they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. And then what's the next phrase? And to the breaking of bread. This, is, they, this isn't talking about fellowship. They've, they've already talked about fellowship. The breaking of bread is literally the Lord's Supper. So they came together. They were saved. They were baptized. They came together. They fellowshiped. They, they fellowshiped around God's word, the teaching of the apostles. They, they championed the word of God. They came together and they fellowshiped together as, as a community of believers, loving on one another. But then they also broke bread together. Literally in Acts chapter 2, that's talking about the supper. 
So the, the, we see the early church, the early followers of Jesus, they, they came and they celebrated this thing we call the Lord's Supper or, or communion. Now turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and let's see what Paul says. From some point when the church was founded to when the church in Corinth was founded, some things began to happen. And so Paul, through the inspiration of the Spirit, gave them a understanding of how you come to the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. Paul said, for I receive from the Lord. He's saying, I'm, this isn't coming from me. This is coming from the authority of Jesus. But I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given things, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Underline that word, new covenant. Those words will come back to it. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Wait a minute. Did you know that there is an unworthy manner to be able to take the Lord's Supper? Well, Paul mentions this. He said, let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks or eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. As we study this passage of scripture, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there are certain things that we understand when we come to the Lord's table. There are certain things that need to be present in our life. Number one, we, when we come to the Lord's table, we understand that we come to the Lord's table as the redeemed. As the redeemed. In other words, Christians are the ones who come to this table. I draw your attention back to Acts chapter 2. It was in Acts chapter 2, it wasn't just anybody who came to the Lord's table, but it was those who had been saved. It wasn't just anybody who came to uh, the Lord's table in the church of Corinth. He is writing, remember, not in a, a, a vacuum, but he's writing uh, in, to the church of Corinth. He's writing to Christians, those who have been redeemed, those who have understood that Christ came to redeem them. He purchased them back. We were all sinners lost our way to an eternity in hell. And Jesus Christ, he came into the world. He, he lived a life that we couldn't live. He died a death that we couldn't die so that we could participate with him. And these men and these women, these boys and these girls, they, they invited Christ into their life and, and they received Jesus into their life and they were saved and they became a part of the church. And then it was as a part of the church that they began to understand and partake of the Lord's Supper. You see, the Lord's Supper is a family meal. It's a family meal, not, not blood family, but family and the family of God. The Lord's Supper is never to be taken as an individual. Did you know that? The Lord's Supper is something that is done corporately together as the body. It occurs within the body. It occurs within the church. So to celebrate communion means that we have to celebrate it with other people. But is it just anybody who can celebrate can any Tom or Harry or, or, or Sally celebrate the supper? The answer is no. The scripture is very clear that uh, what we're celebrating, the, the Lord's Supper, it commemorates what supper? The last supper, right? When Jesus was with his closest followers. 
We call them disciples, the 12 men who, who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, saw him do all the miracles. All of these men were right here. But the gospels go to great lengths to say that there was one person not there at the Lord's Supper. Who was it, church? Judas. The Bible says that Judas got up before Jesus took the bread, before Jesus took the juice, before he took that. The Bible says, and the gospel writers go to great lengths to tell us this, so it's something that we need to observe and stop and think about. Judas was not there. He was not present. So what we find here at the Lord's Supper, at the Last Supper, when Jesus was around looking at the face, not of 12 men, but 11 men, he was looking in the face of believers. The unbeliever had already left. The unbeliever was not there. Judas had gone. Now, as he was looking in the face of these 11 believers, these 11 men, were they perfect? No, they're not perfect. In just a few short hours, Peter's going to deny Christ three times. In just a few short hours, each one of those men are going to desert Jesus as he is being led up to Golgotha, the place of the skull, and he's going to be crucified. Each one of those men in some form, some fashion, are about to deny Christ. I mean, let's be honest. These guys, while they were around the table, uh, it's not the picture of the Last Supper that we see with Jesus leaning over and and John being there. That's not the picture. These, These guys were actually, they started to fight, didn't they? They started arguing around the Last Supper as Jesus is trying to institute the Supper and he's trying to give them the new meaning and he's saying this is a Passover meal, this is something that, that, that is so important and these 11 disciples started acting like children. I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. No, I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. These guys around the Lord's Supper table started getting in an argument. No, they were not perfect. They were not perfect. But they were believers. They were followers, true followers of Jesus Christ. Well, they weren't perfect. They were believers. They were a part of the family. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the, the previous chapter of what we just read, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 17, listen to these words. It says, and we all eat from one loaf, showing that we are one body. You see, when we gather around the Lord's supper table together, we're witnesses to the unity of God's church, to the unity of God's people. As we saw last week, and when we were talking about baptism, we said there are two unifying marks in the life of a believer, salvation and baptism. There's two things that mark a Christian, that, that show a Christian, that unify us together. Uh, while we all have different walks, we all have different family, we all come from different places, we all have different experiences, there are two things that unify every believer in this body called Aloma Church. You've been saved by the Spirit of God, and you've been baptized following your salvation. We enter God's family through salvation. We enter the church family through baptism. Salvation is receiving. Baptism is sharing. You see? You see it? Salvation is receiving the Spirit of God. Baptism is proclaiming what has already taken place. Let me stop for just a moment and give you a few reasons why here at Aloma, how we celebrate and we recognize the Lord's Supper. There's churches, and many churches do it different ways. There are closed communion, which means if you're not a part of that church, then you don't eat of the supper table. If your name's not on the roll of the church, then you're, you, you just can't take. We don't believe that here at Aloma. We, we see church big C. We see the church uh, coming together as a beauty, uh, beautiful uh, gathering of God's people together. So we here at Aloma Church celebrate what's called open communion 
which means you don't have to necessarily be a member of a Loma church to celebrate communion with us. But there are two things that we ask that every person who celebrates at the table, that these two things are present in your life. And I want to give you the biblical reason why in just a moment. We say the two prerequisites for participating in the Lord's Supper is that you have to be saved, you have to be redeemed, and number two, you have to be baptized. Believer's baptism. Let me give you a couple of passages of Scripture that talk about this. First of all, let's look at Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. The Great Commission, it, it's a passage that we know, and let's break this down. First of all, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 says, And Jesus said, All authority under heaven has been given unto me. That's the first point. We need to understand. This is not something that Aloma Church is saying. This is not something that Wesley's saying. This is not something that our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, is saying. This is something that we say. All authority, this is coming from Jesus himself, right? All authority has been given unto Jesus to make this next statement. All authority, all power, all honor has been given to Jesus Christ to make this next statement that he's about to make. And the last words he said right before he ascended, he said this, all authority has been given unto me to make this statement. Now what does he say? He says to us, go therefore into all the nations. Go and make disciples, he says. What does that mean? It means that we go and we take the message of the gospel and we see the lost people saved. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. That means that we go into Winter Park, we go into Orlando, we go into Castleberry, we go into Apopka, we go into Oviedo, but we go into the state of Florida, we, we go all through the United States, we go all around the world making disciples, sharing the love of Jesus Christ with those who listen. We make disciples. We invite any and all who would receive Christ into their life to come and know Christ in a saving way to come and be saved. That's making a disciple. So notice, all authority has been given unto Jesus. He said, now I want you to go and I want you to make disciples. That means that when we go out into the restaurants, when we go into our school, when we go to our work, we're always presenting the gospel of Christ. Go, therefore, make disciples. Then what does he say to do? Then he says, look at it, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So all authority has been given to Jesus. We go and we make disciples. We see the lost people saved. And then we want church. What does it say? We baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then watch the next step. Teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. That, of course, would have been the Lord's Supper and everything that follows after that. So the order is very clear. All authority has been given to Jesus. We go and make disciples. We see the lost people saved. We baptize them. Then we teach them to observe the things. Let me give you another example. What we find in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, follows the same formula. Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the gospel. He's not preaching his gospel. He's preaching under the authority of Jesus Christ. He says, this is not my gospel. This is not my good news. It's the good news of Jesus. So he, he says, all authority has been given unto Jesus. And he points people back to Jesus. And then what happens? People respond to the gospel. People respond to the message. It says they were pricked to their heart and they invited Christ into their life and they were saved. They were filled with the spirit of God and they were saved. And then what happened? It says they were baptized. 3,000 were baptized that day. It says. Then what happened after they were baptized? Acts chapter 2 verse 42. They gathered around the teaching of the apostles Teach them to observe all things. So they were gathered around the teaching. They fellowshiped together. They prayed together. And yes, they also broke bread around the Lord's Supper table together. But what was evident in their life? They were saved. They were baptized. A 
part of the church. Not local church, but church big C. Every person, every person that's recorded in Scripture who partook of the communion was saved and baptized. Lord's Supper is the time for the redeemed. It's not time for just anybody. It's time for those who have received Christ into their life. Number two, the Lord's Supper is a time to reflect. Look at verse 24, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 24. It says, when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper is a time of reflection. It's a time to remember. It's a uh, look at the context of what's happening. The biggest event that ever took place in the Old Testament was what, church? In the Old Testament, what was the biggest event? The Passover, right? Everything, everything led up to the Passover, and then following that, everything looked back to the Passover. The, uh, the, the death angel passing over the houses, and, and uh, the, the blood that was the, the lamb, the spotless lamb that was, uh, had to die and get the blood and put it on the lentils and the doorpost of the home, and the death angel passed over. Everything in the Old Testament was gearing up to it. Everything after it was gearing back to it. Now, that was the pillar of the Old Testament. What's the pillar of the New Testament? Well, it's the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? Everything in the Gospels is pointing to it. Everything after that event is pointing back to it. Now, here's the cool thing. The death and burial and resurrection of Jesus is set at what time in the Jewish festival, in the Jewish calendar? Passover. Isn't that interesting? How God takes this time of Passover, which is the mark of the Jewish faith, the Passover, uh, the, the, the Passover, that, that is what it means to be Jewish, is, is the, the Passover meal. And during the Passover of Jesus' day, this is when uh, the Passover lamb, not just some, any old lamb that's taken, but the spotless lamb of God who is given for the sins of the world has now come. And he's given us fresh meaning and fresh understanding of what is about to take place. So Jesus, Jesus is fulfilling what was previously done. We said a few weeks ago that Jesus said, when he, when he came, he said, I didn't come to, to nullify the law. I didn't come for you to just rip out the Old Testament, but I came to what? I came to fulfill it. That's what Jesus said. So during this Passover meal, he is actually coming to fulfill what was, what was given so many years ago at the time of the Passover. So the time of the Passover, to correctly understand the Passover meal, we must understand it in the context of Jesus Christ. The lamb that was taken, the lamb, it's not just any old lamb as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10. We don't take the blood of bulls and goats and have to sacrifice year after year after year anymore, do we church? But no, it was the sacrifice once for all. Jesus' sacrifice, Hebrews chapter 10, the sacrifice of Jesus was once for all sins of mankind. Now there is a belief out there in, in some churches that it's called transubstantiation. It means that when you come to the bread and you come to the juice, that it becomes the literal body and the literal blood of Jesus. That's wrong. You know why that's wrong? The reason why that's wrong is because if you truly believe that it becomes the literal body and the literal blood of Jesus, then you're crucifying Jesus again. If you believe that after I pray and this somehow becomes the literal body and literal blood of Jesus, then then you're crucifying Jesus over and over and over again. I have a lot of dear friends in the Roman Catholic Church, but this is where one of the many reasons why I differ with them. You see, every week at their mass, they crucify Jesus again and again and again and again and again and again and again. That's wrong. 
Jesus' sacrifice 2,000 years ago, friend, was sufficient all the way till today, tomorrow, and as long as you will ever live. He doesn't have to be crucified again. Notice what he says. He didn't say that this is my literal body and blood, but he says, do this in what? Remembrance of me. This is a memorial. This is a memorial. It's a time for us to remember and time for us to say this is symbolic of his body. This is symbolic of his blood. Do this in remembrance of me. We're reflecting. Now this word remembrance, it's an interesting word. Uh, Oftentimes I, I meet Christians and one of the struggles that Christians have as they approach the Lord's Supper table is this. They say, uh, you know, in, in the old school Baptist uh, churches, you had a table that stood up front. And what did it say on the front of the table? Do this in remembrance of me, right? You've seen those tables. So many Christians say, well, pastor, when you take the bread, and you take the juice and you break and you always say, do this in remembrance of me. Honestly, pastor, I've been saved for so long. I don't remember my salvation experience. I, I don't remember exactly what I said. I don't remember what what I was wearing, and I've, I've heard so many evangelists say that if I don't remember uh, the smell of the room that I was in, then, then I'm lost. And that's not what this means. That's not what this means. Listen to me. If you've known Christ, you've trusted Christ as Savior and Lord. It doesn't matter if you were five years old or if you were 55 years old. The, 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 the actual uh, things that were going on around, that doesn't matter. What, what matters is did you place your faith and trust in Christ? Did you follow him? Did you confess your sins and invite him into your life? If you did that, according to God's word, you're saved. If you believed it by faith. It doesn't matter if you remembered what color tie the preacher was wearing when it was, the sermon was preached that you invited Christ. That's not what he means when he says, do this in remembrance of me. That word remember in the Greek, actually, it it talks about that which happened in the past, when you were redeemed, when you were saved. But that word remember, not only is the past form of salvation when I was saved, but it also carries the present form of salvation. Friend, do you realize that right now you are currently being saved by the Holy Spirit of God? The same grace that saved you in the past is the same grace that is sustaining you right now in the present. It's called sanctification. The Spirit of God is sanctifying you. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you turn over there, you'll see that he's talking about being saved. It's the process of being saved. And just as you did nothing to be saved in the past, you can do nothing right now in the present. It's all the grace of God. It's all by his mercy and by his grace that we were saved and we're being saved. So when he says, do this in remembrance of me, yes, in a way we're looking back to when we were saved. But we're also looking back and we're celebrating and saying, God, thank you for saving me now. In remembrance of what he's doing for us now. But here is the cool thing. It also carries a future meaning. Not only only do we do this in remembrance of me thinking about salvation past and salvation present, but we're also looking forward to salvation future when we're glorified and we step into glory and we remember that. The idea of participating in, in... Uh, something that's drastically changed our life. What's changed your life? I can tell you right now, the paramount thing that has changed my life is Jesus Christ. He's changed me. I, I would be embarrassed if you knew me before I was saved. But following my salvation, he's radically changed my life. And I think that that would be your testimony as well. It doesn't matter when you were saved or how you were saved. If you are saved, then Jesus has radically changed your life. And he's saving you right now. 
And he's going to give you that future form of salvation, glorification when you step into heaven. And when we come to the Lord's table, we, we come here reflecting. We reflect on our past. We reflect on our present. We reflect on our future. You see, the same blood that covered our sins in the past is the same blood that covers our sins in the present, which is the same blood that will cover our sins in the future. He's forgiven us past, present, and future. And so when we come to this table, it's not simply just remembering that one event that happened in the past. It's a remembrance of a consistent story of your life. You see? It's not just when you were saved, but it's right now. And you reflect right now. And you reflect for what's going to happen tomorrow. It's a time to reflect. It's also a time to repent. Look at verse 28 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 28 says, Let a person examine himself then, so, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine himself. The unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living. There's unconfessed sin in your life right now, unconfessed sin in your life, in some area of your life, in some attitude of your life. It's time. Before you come to the Lord's table, you should and you must repent and confess of that sin. Examine your life. Repent of it. Uh, the word repentance, you, you, we've talked about it before. It, it means you're walking in one direction, you stop and you walk in the exact opposite direction. Repentance is not flippantly saying, God, I'm sorry for that, and then you go and you do it again, and you say, oh, God, I'm sorry for that, and then you go and do it again. That's not true biblical repentance. True biblical repentance means that you're walking in one way of life, and you stop, and you radically change, and you walk in a completely different way of life. And hear me, you can't do that by yourself. You cannot physically, within your own life, live that kind of life. You can't do it. You see, you're living under the Christian life and you say, I've got the Spirit of God living inside of me. But pastor, I'm struggling with this sin. I'm struggling with this sin and it happens over and over and over. I struggle with the sin of pornography or I struggle with the sin of addiction or I struggle with the sin of alcohol or gossip or lying or whatever it may be, hatred or, or racism or, or whatever sin that is in your life and you say, I'm struggling with this sin over and over and over and I come to God, I say, God, take this away from me. Friend, the only way you can do it, the only way it's going to happen is through the grace of God. You cannot, you cannot in your own flesh just lay that down and say, okay, I'm not doing it again. You can't do it. The flesh is too powerful. Satan is too powerful. The only way it's going to happen is that you really live the crucified life. You live the, the sanctified life. That you put it down and you say, only by the grace of God, God help me not to participate in this sin anymore. See, it's not impossible to say no to sin, church. You can say no to sin. Oh, sin is powerful. Yes, it is. Sin is very powerful. Sin feels very good. If it didn't feel good, then we wouldn't do it. But we put it down. Only by the grace of God, put it down. Reject it, repent, and turn from it. It says, let everyone examine himself individually. Notice that. It says, let everyone examine himself. That means that the person on this side of the sanctuary should not be examining the person on this side of the sanctuary. You shouldn't say, oh, brother so-so, he shouldn't be going to the Lord's Supper table. You know what he's doing. <laughs> it says... 
In the same passage, the, the same idea, judge not lest you be judged, is, is right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You see, it says examine ourselves individually. We're not concerned about the person to your right or the person to your left. You're concerned about your own self. So as you approach the Lord's Supper table, you examine yourself, each person examining himself or herself. Is there sin in my life? And if there is, then you claim that promise in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friend, that's a promise. That's a promise given to us by God himself. That you can't do it in your own power, but if you trust him to cleanse you, if you trust him to be able to allow you to turn away from that and to stop living in this lifestyle of sin, he will give you the power. The same power that saves you is the same power that will sustain you. And God's desire is for you to live not the, the normal Christian life, not the mediocre Christian life, but to live the successful Christian life. Living in this power of the Spirit. None of us here are at this table because we're good enough. None of us come to this table because we deserve to be here. We only come to this table by the grace of God. But it's in the grace of God, in the spirit of repentance, a desire for holiness, a desire for purity and devotion. That's why we come to this table, to remember. Finally, it's a time to rejoice. We often miss this point when we come to the Lord's Supper. We, we pass over this phrase like it's not there, but let's look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. Notice what it says. He says, For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. What's the last phrase? Until he comes. Until he comes. Jesus gave us a wonderful promise, didn't he, in John chapter 14? He said, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will return again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. You see, when we come to the Lord's Supper table, it's remembering past, yes. It's remembering present, yes. But it's also remembering the future of what's going to take place. You see, this is just as much the message of the gospel as the baptism is. And we come around the Lord's Supper table. We are proclaiming the Christ's return the physical, bodily return of Jesus Christ. And I believe that the time is coming very soon. I believe that Jesus is returning very soon. I believe it's going to happen with our generation, not because of my own belief, but because that's what God's Word says. God's Word says that the generation that sees Israel become a nation, that generation will not pass until the Lord comes and returns. You see, that generation that saw Israel come to pass, that, that generation... My parents' generation that saw Israel become a nation, that generation, I'm sorry to say if you're here, you're getting old. That generation is beginning to move on. And sorry, Mom, I love you if you're watching. I love you. You're not old. Everybody else is, but you're not. <laughs> but God's word is true, right? God's word says it. And if God's word says it, then we can take that to the bank so we know those that are 50, 60, 70 years old, it's within this generation that the Lord's going to return. Friend, this is reality. This is truth. This is what's going to happen. Everything that God prophesied was going to happen is happening in our day. Earthquakes in diverse places. That means earthquakes that happen in places you shouldn't be seeing earthquakes. Earthquakes. 
An increase of tornadoes and hurricanes and tidal waves and all the such. Just turn on the news. An apparatus that's going to be able to capture every iota of even what you're thinking. Look at the news of what's happening right now in our country, right now, and what our government's doing. Just look. Just look. I'm not preaching Republican or Democrat. I'm not preaching any of that. But listen to me. The time is right. Everything is right there for Antichrist to take over and to do what Revelation says is going to happen. This was not possible 10 years ago. This was not possible five years ago. But it's possible today. It's happening right before our eyes. In the church of Jesus Christ, we're, we're putting our hands up and saying, we give up. There was a report in the Orlando paper this week somebody sent to me. And it said that the Southern Baptist Convention, our denomination, and listen, denominations are not going to lead you to heaven. Denominations, within that word denomination, the word man is there. There's no right or wrong denomination. But within our denomination that we belong to, within this group of bodies called Southern Baptists, we are the largest Protestant denomination, but we are on a slippery slope and declining so fast. We can't even baptize. We can't even baptize the number of people today that we baptized in the 50s, but yet there are more people in our country today. Our church membership is declining. Our salvations are declining. Our baptisms are declining. And while the church is declining, our society is declining. And we look at this and we throw our hands up and say, what are we going to do? We look at the people with spiked hair and earrings in their ear and we say, oh, we don't want them. We look at people and they, the, 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 the people that don't talk like us or look like us or even smell like us and we say, oh, we don't want them in the church. What? What? We don't embrace the culture, but we must embrace the gospel and believe. Believe that what this book says, that the same spirit that saved you can and will save that person with every hole of his ear lobe full of earrings. Hair down below his, his legs. The color, Lord only knows what color that is of his hair. I guess what I'm trying to say is that when we come to this table, we, as we rejoice, we, we look forward to what God promised, but it's not that we do that within ourselves. This, this part of rejoicing, this part of the Lord's return, I, I truly believe that we as Christians, if we truly embrace and we truly grab a hold of the fact that Jesus Christ is coming and his coming is imminent, his coming can happen at any moment, at any moment of any day, right now, there's nothing keeping Jesus from coming back right now at this very moment. If we truly believe that, that's going to change our message or how we to deliver that message. It's going to change us. We're not going to just go to a restaurant and eat and not share our faith with that waiter or waitress. It's going to cause us to pick up the phone and call our mom or dad or, or, or a son or daughter who don't know Christ and we're going to share the love of Christ with them. It's going to not change the message, but it's going to get us on fire to believe that this message has the power. You see, God's word shall not return void. 
And in the last day, there's going to be a great revival falling. And we're seeing that all around the world except for in our country. Did you know that Korea, South Korea, they're actually sending missionaries to our country? A country that in the 1950s we were sending missionaries to, we won that country for Christ, and now they're sending missionaries to us because we're so bad. Revival is happening all around the world, and why are we not seeing it? The freest country in the world, and we're not seeing it. We must come rejoicing, believing, and expecting that the Lord that we're celebrating his death, we're also looking forward to when he comes again. And when he comes again, when we believe, when we truly believe that message, church, listen, don't miss this, it will change our heart. And we'll begin to share that message. You see, when God, in the beginning, God created all things, I believe, in a sixth literal day creation. I believe that he created everything that you see in six literal days. On the sixth day, he created animals, he created man, and when he created man, he said that this is my greatest creation. He said, I am very pleased with this creation. He said, I created man in my own image. God is Father, Son, Spirit. God is Trinity, and he created man in a Trinitarian form. God created us with a flesh, with a spirit, and with a soul. He said, I created you in in my image. I created you triune as I am triune. As he is Father, Son, Spirit. We are flesh, soul, spirit. And we know that what happened there when he created man, man was was walking around and he was bummed. He was kicking the rocks that God had just created. And he looked down at Adam and he said, it's not good for man to be alone. So he put Adam to sleep and from his side he created Eve. From his rib he created Eve, a helpmate. And he looked and he said, this is very good. And he looked at Adam and he looked at Eve and he said, go populate the earth. You are my greatest creation. You are my love child. You are the greatest thing that I've ever done. And I love you so much. Go and populate the world. You know the story, Adam and Eve, they, in all of the splendor, but they did exactly what you and I would have done. That soul and that spirit, that spirit that was communing with God, the heart, the soul, which is the mind, but that flesh, that body was real. And as that body listened to that serpent who crawled up, he, he said, surely God won't kill you. You are the greatest creation. You're the greatest creation. He's not going to take your life. He was just kidding. So Adam and Eve, they sinned. They partook of the fruit that God said, don't take. And then sin entered into the fabric of time. What happened, that sin that entered in, it didn't affect our body. It didn't affect our mind, but it affected our spirit. See, that's what separates us really from the animal kingdom is our spirit, isn't it? Uh, the, The spirit, that which communes with God, not our soul, not our mind. Animals have a mind. They they have a soul. They can think and reason. What separates us from the animal kingdom and, and, and vegetation and everything that's alive, that what separates us human beings from everything else is that you and I have a spirit. We have the ability to commune and talk with God and God to talk with us. And at that moment when sin entered into the fabric of time, it marred the spirit of man. In fact, Paul says that you're dead in your sin and trespasses. Every human being born from that point to today still has a body, still has a soul, still has a spirit, but they're born in death and instead. 
the age of 17, I was in a little small church in Morristown or Maryville, Tennessee. It was at that moment that I understood the weight of the sin that I have committed. I understood that I was a sinner before a holy God, and I knew that if I would have died that moment, I would have split the gates of hell wide open. I knew that. I understood that. And it was at that moment that I opened my heart and I invited Christ to come into my life and he saved me. And what happened at that moment was my spirit that was dead, it was now alive in the Lord. Here today there are two types of people. Two types of people and only two types of people. There's those that are lost and those who are saved. Those who are wheat and those who are tear. Those who are on the narrow road, those who are on the wide road. Those who are going to heaven, those who are going to hell. Those who are Christians and those who are not. Only two types. Everybody has a soul, everybody has a spirit, everybody has a body. We're all the same. You're created in the image of God and God loves you. And here's how much God loves you in that while you were at sinner, Christ died for you. That's how much God loves you. That despite the fact that you're a no good, low down, dirty sinner, just like every guy and every woman that's been mentioned in the Bible with the exception of Jesus Christ, you're just like everybody else. Some of us here are having a pity party saying that God doesn't love you. That's the, that's the biggest lie straight from the pit of hell I've ever heard. The Bible says that for God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that if you will receive him into your life that you'll believe in him, you'll never die, but you have everlasting life. That's the truth. That's the truth. Today as we prepare to come before this table, we have an opportunity We have an opportunity to come to this table and to celebrate as a church. But it wouldn't be right if we didn't talk about first your spiritual walk. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior and Lord, why don't you receive him into your life today? See, the the bad news is that we're all sinners destined for hell, but the good news is that Christ came to save you. The good news is Christ is knocking on the door of your heart, and if you will open that door and allow him to come in, he will come in and he will save you. You say, well, I'm not good enough yet. I've got to get some things right in my life before I come to know Christ. It doesn't work that way. You come to him, as the, the old hymn says, just as you are, just as I am, I come. And you come just as you are and he will save you. He, I came just as the way I was. I'm looking in the face of, of saints who have been saved for, for many years and some for just a few years. But they all came the same way just as they were. Broken in their sin. Dead in their spirit. But Christ made them alive. And what he did for us, he will do for you. What he did for Peter and Paul and James and John and Mary and Martha, the list goes on. What he did there, the same spirit of God who lived and indwelt men and women of the Bible is the same spirit who indwells men and women today. So you can invite Christ into your life this day right now where you are and he will save you.